So for me, digital trust was the fundamental question uh, that has been persisting through each new evolution. Can we trust the output of this vast communication network to make decisions and to be the information on which we live our lives? So Jeffrey Ritter has been at the forefront of enabling electronic commerce for nearly 30 years uh, as a lawyer, uh, a UN diplomat, an academic researcher, and a business executive. And today he's a visiting fellow at the University of Oxford, where he teaches a graduate level course in software engineering on governing digital information. Welcome, Jeffrey. Thank you. Uh, now, you've, uh, you've recently written a book called uh, Achieving Digital Trust, um, and today I'd like to explore that topic with our audience. So, for starters, help us understand what you really mean by digital trust, and, and, and tell us how you became so passionate about that subject. It actually began as long ago as 1982. Uh, at the time, I had the, the uh, extraordinary opportunity as a young lawyer to be the only lawyer working for Victoria's Secret. <laughs> And so, you know, it's not a job that a male guy found unattractive. <laughs> yeah. All sorts of Dream interesting job. legal issues came up. <laughs> uh, one of them, though, was that, of course, as the company grew faster and faster, they wanted to have their garments manufactured in China. But the Chinese were insisting that someone get on a plane, fly over there, sign a purchase order uh. in blue ink. And my client wanted to send faxes. Sure. So they asked me, no, actually they directed me, solve the problem. And so the problem I realized in retrospect was to make a fax legally enforceable. But more importantly to your question, it was how do I convince the Chinese to trust what is essentially a pixelated black and white image of an original paper document 5,000 miles away? Right. We take that for granted now, but that wasn't always the case with faxes. It, it was not. In fact, we would actually look to verify its authenticity by things like the, the stamp of the phone number from which it originated that was included on the top of a fax. And so from that point forward, uh, long before the Internet, long before we even had computers with dedicated networks and were dialing up using copper telephone lines, the question kept rebounding with each new level of technology. How do we trust what these machines, these networks, these devices, these software applications are pre producing for us and what information that is that we rely on in our daily lives as well as in business? So for me, digital trust was the fundamental question uh, that has been persisting through each new evolution. Can we trust the output of this vast communication network to make decisions and to be the information on which we live our lives? Fantastic. So you've obviously been doing this a long time. What are, what are some of the other things, some of the other interesting anecdotes? What else have you done with digital trust over all these years? <laughs> anecdotes? Well, some of them are kind of like if you work with the agency in Washington. If I told you, you'd, you know, I'd have to shoot you. <laughs> um, but... I think probably the anecdotes that, that are fascinating are where the momentum came for the new evolutions. For example, most people don't know that Skype was actually an innovation out of Estonia. Really? In the Nordic regions, where communication is very hard to, 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 to achieve because of the vast distances between spaces. And, of course, language is a common issue up there, although many speak English. And so Skype kind of originates out of this technology uh, appetite they had for using the technology to deal with the fact it's doggone cold out there and a lot of people don't get around very easily. Um, in the early 1990s, um, we, uh, at the time I was representing the United States uh, in Geneva at the UN as we negotiated the rules for what would make electronic commerce legally valid. Um, and we were stunned in late 1994 that it was South Korea, without any prior notice to the rest of the world, that adopted the first national law on validating electronic data interchange. <laughs> and so one of the things that I think is probably an anecdote about all of this is that this is not unique to North America. It's not unique to first world countries. In fact, to the contrary, 
smaller nations, less developed economies, economies fighting to compete globally have often been at the forefront of the innovation, recognizing that if they can achieve trust and achieve with that good information security and reliability and information, they actually become a more valued trading partner or part of the network. And so today, in many respects, uh, those parts of the world where governments and the private sector are collaborating on improving the security and improving the reliability of information, they're gaining a competitive advantage. We do take so much up for granted these days because the internet has evolved so quickly. And I know that my daughters, who are teenagers now, just just take it for granted. It's just that's just the way things are. Sure, they were born digital. That's correct. So, at a very basic level, what does it mean when we really say trust? What, how do we define trust? How do we gain trust? And then on the flip side of that, how, how do we lose trust? And how do we? And if we've lost, how do we regain? There's there's a lot of there's there's a, there's a lot to that I know, and a lot of people don't really think about it. But well, you obviously those, have those three questions: how do we how do we get it? How do we lose it? How do we regain it? Is kind of like explaining to someone in two hundred words: how do you play uh, soccer, right? Because <laughs> uh, it's all about momentum and positioning. All right, let's start with the beginning. In writing about digital trust, the unexpected journey for me was that I had to completely reimagine what it means for a person to trust or not trust. And I came up with some insights that after doing a fair amount of research in sociology and psychology and organizational management and information design, um, I didn't see being written down. And so let me start with that. Uh, first, we think of trust as an emotion, but I repudiate that concept. Trust is a calculation. It's a decision we make between our ears as to whether to trust the glass of water each of us have here in front of us here in the studio, whether we trust the vehicles on the car, or whether we trust the credit score that appears on the screen uh, representing either our credit or someone we might be doing business with. That decision, that calculation is complex, but it is arithmetic in its nature. Uh, just like a basic algebra in seventh grade, where A plus B over C square root of D equals E, we look for the variables that will allow us to calculate trust for anything that we are deciding whether or not to award our trust in the same way. And so the second principle is that trust is a rules-based decision, meaning that for everything that we choose to trust, our life experiences, our business experiences, build for us an inventory of rules, an inventory of requirements that have to be satisfied in order for us to reach an affirmative decision that something can be trusted. Now, for most of that, that's completely unconscious, right? As human beings, we do this all the time without thinking about it. Right. It's one of, it's one of the magnificent... And uh, engines inside our head is our ability to do complex mathematics. But what we know about the rules is that we then need the information to change the and plug A and B and C and D. So this is where it gets interesting because for us to trust a car, a computer, a glass of water, a teacher in the front of the classroom, we're pretty well experienced in that. We know the rules and we know the kind of sensory information we try to collect as to whether to make that decision. But when we move into computer information, something that's being displayed on a screen or may not even be human readable, but that we are delegating our machines the responsibility of understanding, it gets harder because the information is nothing that we can absorb with our senses. Mm -hmm. Instead, we are trying to acquire that information from a third party. Think of a real simple movie. You know, there's a new movie out yesterday called Dunkirk. All right, you and I are talking around, sitting around, you know, talking. What do we want to do? We want to go see the movie? Well, what does it say on Yelp? What's the Rotten Tomato rating? Mm -hmm. um, suddenly, we're looking for information to meet our rules as to what's a good film, but we're relying on third parties to provide mm -hmm. that information. And so the third dimension there is that trust is a rules-based calculation fueled by information that comes from third parties, third sources. Right? We can only absorb so much with our senses. The rest of it that we need comes down elsewhere. Now, if I'm a small business, I'm trying to decide who's going to be the supplier of my condiment supply. Say I'm a restaurant. Um, I have a decision to make. 
a decision which supplier to trust. It's not just a matter of the price, it's also a matter of reliability of service, the quality of the product, the integrity with which they deal with spoiled ketchup that I may open up. And so we find out that trust decisions are not just uniquely uh, based in the digital domain. They're part of everything we do, as you said. And so that brought me to the final re-expression of it, which is that trust is a rules-based calculation fueled by information acquired from trusted sources. Mm. See, that's the trick. It's mm -hmm. three layers. I have to trust the source to trust the information the source is providing to calculate whether I can trust the target of my decision. And so now when that target is digital information, uh, such as a sales report that supposedly Bob sent me, but I'm suspicious because the email was from Honolulu, um, <laughs> then notice how quickly it becomes a more complex decision and not something that we can easily calculate between our ears. Something more is needed. That's the problem I'm trying to solve. I think the funny thing is that when computers first came out, and when I, by that I mean like 80s, you know, like way back when, and, and I think people saw a computer printout and said, oh, well, it came from a computer. It must be, there's, there, it's unquestionable because a computer generated, computers don't lie. I think, that, I think that was an early thing way back when. I, I think obviously we've matured a lot since then well, and realized. Actually, maybe, <laughs> maybe not. Um, in, in the 1980s, um, uh, at one point, there was and continues to be great debate in the courts, particularly in the United States, on the admissibility of a computer record. The mm. original position in the 80s was if it came out of the box, it must be as good as the real thing. Mm -hmm. And no one anticipated the possibility that the machine would print out something that was not complete, accurate, and on all of our rules, fully equivalent to an original. Now, of course, that bar has not just been raised, it's gone out you know, into outer space in terms of our willingness to question the information. But there are still judges that are asking, well, don't you have this in paper form? And as soon as it's on paper, they'll think that, that it gives it a level of credibility that it does not have on a computer screen. Yeah, we just talked about, uh, last week we talked about uh, verifying votes, votes at the at the ballot, uh, you know, and and how we have these computers for generate for recording votes with no paper trail whatsoever. So there's no paper in. It was purely electronic uh, means for recording the vote, and they would actually do recounts by just printing what the information was in the database, which is no better than you know whatever was entered by the user through a screen. You right. don't know that that's any more accurate than anything else, and how important it was to actually have that paper trail where you actually the user takes a piece of paper puts their information on the paper, and then that's read, but it can also be verified by human later. Right. And, and I think one of the things that we're working through is as we see more and more computing efficiency evolve, we don't have a paper alternative. We actually, to place our trust in digital information, we have to find a way of transporting the rules that we have from between our ears into something that's explicit and something that can be coded and then something that can do the math on our behalf. And that's the interesting junction. So that if we're in a, um, say, a securities market where brokers in New York are buying and selling stocks and bonds, well, that works because they have a closed system with very defined rules and very rigid requirements for the quality of information that will be relied upon to initiate or execute trades. For the rest of us, it's, you know, it's still very young in our way of dealing with those questions. And yet that's where the competitive differential is emerging. The companies that can make good decisions based on digital information are going to make decisions faster. They're going to be great, more reliable, and those become the building blocks of creating more wealth. So in a digital world, without the, without the regular human social cues that we may have had as, as we've evolved as a species, how do, we, how do we develop a sense of digital trust with something? How do, and how do we lose and regain that trust? We're a new breed of talk radio with a new breed of host and shows to entertain and inform you. It's America Out Loud Talk Radio. Shows that impact your health, honor our heroes, political talk. Shows that inspire you to live a truly authentic life. You can hear your favorite shows on networks like iHeartRadio or AHA Radio. Or just download our free apps on both Android and Apple. Well, we are proud to have you as one of our growing family of listeners. 
We are the vision of the voices, AmericaOutloud.com. Now, without a doubt, my friends, this is a game changer. It was for me, and it can be for you. I want to give you an exclusive offer today for our friends of America Out Loud. We appreciate you, and we want to show it right now with our complimentary gift. You can try this today free with our Healthy Cell Pro 7-Day Sample. Now, when I say free, I mean it is 100% free. Free shipping, no risk, no obligation, no credit card required. It's a complimentary gift from us to you. Now, Healthy Cell, it's, I'll tell you what, 90-plus nutrients are infused into every cell of your body. This product has been incredible for me personally, and I think it can be for you as well. So I want you to try it. It'll boost your energy, you'll sleep better at night, sharpens your focus, you'll feel healthier, and hopefully we'll all live longer in a beautiful, prosperous life I always talk about with you on the show. Well, I'll tell you what, you can go to the front page of AmericaOutloud.com and just click the large banner ad, and we'll have that complimentary gift right off to you. So in a digital world, without the, without the regular human social cues that we may have had as, as we've evolved as a species, how do, we, how do we develop a sense of digital trust with something? How do, and how do we lose and regain that trust? The ways we're doing it kind of map what I said a few minutes ago. I mean, when you look at the evolution of some of the most successful online retailers, uh, particularly eBay and Amazon, each of them have worked very hard to create the building blocks for trust in their interactions with their markets, their ecosystems. Uh, think of how we rate buyers and sellers on eBay. Think of the feedback you get on Amazon. Think of the transparency with which we can see disputes that customers have had and how we rely on that to evaluate whether we will do business with that particular seller on eBay. All of those are building blocks of transparency where we're generating out the information, making it available so people can make their trust decision calculations more efficiently. Um, in marketplaces that aren't just consumer markets, uh, we're seeing companies develop probability algorithms that help evaluate inbound data for the business and in effect do the math automatically, but using the same kind of building blocks. Where did the information come from? Uh, a great anecdote that shows the problem where trust can be lost uh, was a few years ago where a bad actor uh, hacked into the Twitter account for the Associated Press. Mm. And gained control of the, of, the, of the account and generated a false tweet. It said the White House had been bombed and President Obama had been injured. Right. Within 30 seconds, uh, over $400 million of trades were executed by automated trading algorithms that said, if we see these words in Twitter feeds, then we sell the following securities at the following rates. No one ever understood that a possible hack could occur on the control of a Twitter account. And so there's a situation where obviously relying on Twitter content to make trading decisions worth hundreds of millions of dollars uh, changed the game. Now, we, what, the way we regain trust is we need to write a rule that deals with that. So now the automated bots are still out there buying and selling based on Twitter feeds, but they're also saying, but if the White House is, is bombed and the president is reported to be injured, we need it from at least three of the following 82 qualified sources. Again, they're trusting the source before they trust the information and they're verifying it with multiple inputs. Well, and now you're talking about automating this the, the, these algorithms. It's not, not even just between your ears anymore. Now you've taken the time to Right, some sort of a system because, especially when you talk about finance, you want to be able to react to these things so quickly because that's you know that's make or break when we talk about these financial you know selling stocks because everything is about the microsecond. So you're now you're trying to write these algorithms into uh, some sort of an automated process. To, uh, since you wrote the, literally wrote the book on this, yeah. is that is that something that you recommend people do? Can you actually automate that well enough to make those kind of decisions? Um, you can, um, and it's being done every day. What you know, trust as a calculation, also never results in a 100% score. It's always going to be something less than 100. 
Uh, it's a probability. It's a confidence level. Yeah, it's a confidence level. And so that's why when we say, I trust him with all my heart, it's really a nice human way of saying, I trust him in the, as, a, as a six sigma level of confidence, right? Uh, we just don't express it that way. Right. Um, are people doing this? Uh, they are in the kinds of complex business networks where so much information is moving among everyone. Um, uh, supply chains, uh, financial markets, uh, hospital, healthcare is another example, transportation systems. Uh, you know, we don't think about it too much, but as it turns out, you know, uh, a locomotive has 128 different sensors on that front engine. Each of those sensors is measuring the performance of one of the components of the locomotive. And they're measuring it against big data that's being collected from tens of thousands of other locomotives. And so a certain vibration ratio at a certain speed in a certain component is a prediction of failure that allows them to bring that locomotive in 100 hours before failure, replace the component with a confidence that They've lived, you know, made the full use of that component and that the maintenance is, is justified. Now, that's, those are all decisions, but they're also trusted decisions in the reliability of the sensors, the reliability of the information, the algorithms to ca calculate, predict, to fail, the algorithms that offset the maintenance time against the production time the locomotive could either be, uh, be in use and productively engaged combined with the disruption of having that locomotive off on a side rail uh, and what that does to the 82 trucks that would be meeting the cars that are being called to offload the trailers onto the 18-wheel gut. It's, it's all complicated trust decisions that are being driven by the simple formula that I've provided. But through most of that, we're only now waking up to the fact that we can't presume all of that information's accuracy and reliability and integrity. Instead, we have to affirmatively calculate that to squeeze out the possibility of fraud and error. You know, Caleb Barlow is the uh, IBM Senior Vice President on Security. And he said for this year in 2017, there would be a major change. People would begin to lose trust in systems because the bad actors are no longer exfiltrating the data, copying it and taking it out, but still leaving it there. So you know, it's no really they're changing the data. <laughs> so much of what you just talked about was uh, what I would call semi-objective things. These are sensors. These are things that they may malfunction. They may be hacked, but it, 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 there's some sort of a measurement device. Um, but earlier we talked about transparency and 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 what uh, what other humans feel uh, subjectively. Is this movie good? Is this uh, is this business reliable and reputable? Um, there's also a lot of pushback against that. There's, for instance, uh, one of the things that came on in college campuses was, you know, rate your professor. And I know a lot of professors hated that. Mm. And then, and, and, you know, you being one of them, you could talk to that. Doctors as well. There's, you know, there's systems where people will go and rate their doctors and hospitals. Uh, I, I know there was, there was a lot of pushback against these things and, and trying to keep these things squelched so that people couldn't make informed decisions. Um, but let's start with the first part of it. Right. If you look at go back to literally at this time yesterday, we were looking to go to a movie and the Rotten Tomato rating of a movie was something that we actually talked about over the dining room. And it wasn't the number of tomatoes. It was actually 97.5 versus an 89.3. So what we're seeing is a lot of that subjective expressionism being converted into metrics already <laughs> and gently. I think inexorably, uh, we as human beings are beginning to think metrically when mm. we're making these decisions. So that's that's point one. And uh, let's say I'm choosing a teacher for my student in an in a elementary school, and I have the freedom of choice. There's three third grade teachers, and uh, we just moved in, so they all have a bill. Which one of them would you like? Well, there's going to be subjective feelings, of course. But there will also be objective input, or rather subjective information converted to objective data that I'll be looking at. And it's almost a metric based. Well, were they graded A minus? Were they graded B plus? 
that's still a metric expression just mm -hmm. against a non-numerical expression. Mm -hmm. We know how to convert those because that's what grading scales are all about. Um, I think that the, the, the real challenge here is how can we take these concepts into interpersonal communication, into uh, the family life, into just the way we decide what restaurant we're going to go to in the evening. None of those are things we inherently do on a metric basis. And yet something's happening in the calculations between our ears that's converting what we see, what we acquire as information, into some math. That's the hard part. Um, for me, you know, there, there's psychologists and sociologists that do endless amounts of studies of trying to do that and uh, get some objective measurements of how people behave on trust questions. My focus is on a different point, but it's all converging, which is so often in times prior to this point, we've written our rules with the expectation of emotion uh, without any metric expression. For example, it's not uncommon for a hospital to be told in a, in a federal law, uh, hospitals shall establish reasonable security controls to protect the most sensitive personal information. What's reasonable? Mm. What information is the sensitive? What's the more sensitive? What's freely given out because it's not sensitive at all? All of these are efforts to express rules so that we can trust these systems. But the way we write the rules, particularly in the law, is ambiguous. And so that problem is where I work a lot with my students and the tools that are presented in the book. How can we take these standards of conduct that we often express uh, and, sub and, and often in subjective terms? Uh, a, a teacher is going to have really good classroom skills. Well, what's really good classroom skills mean? Are you measuring the... Uh, quality of the children graduating from college, you know, 15 years later, you're looking at the number of students that are not sent to the principal's office, so she must have good behavioral skills. Uh, we're trying to do that. And for me, uh, for the engineers of the world that, that are trying to, to build better systems, we've got to find a way of, of expressing our rules in a manner that can be ma mapped into the code of the systems. So is that, is that where we're going today? Is, is everything going to be rated? There was actually a company, I, I, I don't know if they finally fell off the face of the earth, but the last year I think it was, that was actually rating people. Like, I rate you. Like, I could actually go on the website without your permission, I can rate you. And people could look up my rating of well, you. Like, like professors and like doctors. And yeah, like except for else. just everyday people. So it's not a service I'm paying for, which I would argue that that has value. If, if, if mm. someone's coming to you to pay for a service in some way or another, then... I think it makes sense to have some sort of those ratings available, but just me as a human being to rate you out of nowhere and have that be publicly available was kind of creepy. But is that where we're at now? Well, I don't know. What was your rating of me? <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see how this interview goes. All right, <laughs> great. Well, there, there is an unsettling quality to all of this uh, as we move sure. towards more and more rating. Mm -hmm. um, Perhaps the, the one that takes it to the extreme, but it's also right on the on the cusp of reality is what's happening on the other side of the world in China. Uh, China has announced what they call a social credit score mm -hmm. towards which they are moving. And it is, in fact, a trust score. Uh, this is going to be ubiquitous and comprehensive throughout Chinese society. And to a lot of people, particularly American culture, it would be scary as heck. Um, what will happen is they will track your educational data. They will track your Facebook engagement. They will track uh, the timeliness with which you pay your bills. They will also track how many people with dissident views you've interacted with. Mm -hmm. uh, they will track whether your father has had a drinking problem. And all of this is being mashed up in a rather scary big brother sort of way into the score, which will then be relied upon in uh, downstream decisions that are being made. So say you went to high school, you met a lot of people, they turned into distance, but you've stayed in touch with them because you all shared the same affection for a football team. They'll look very carefully at that. And you might find that it's harder to get into the right university, that your credit rating is going to be 10 points lower. And it has a way of obviously 
uh, motivating conformity yes. to some articulated expression of what should be good for society. Right. That's scary. But I think that the passion for my own work comes from the uh, desire to make it conspicuous so that we can have dialogues about the directions we're headed. It's so easy to uh, you know, uh, overlook how quickly some of the core technologies are changing our culture. Um, and then suddenly we wake up one day and realize that, wow, I haven't talked to a real human being for four days, but I've had 48 conversations. Mm. Um, yeah, because we're so reliant on the technology. And, you know, look at the number of retail stores across America that are being closed right now. Yeah. Entire shopping mall shutting down. Um, but with that, we're losing a cultural engagement, social interactions uh, that were historically a big part of any community. And I think that it's important to raise these issues, not because we're going to turn off the computers. I don't think that's going to be easy to accomplish but that we have a better sense of the direction we're headed with this and can um, you know, bring these questions into the front side as to where do we put the limits on the ability of the machines to calculate trust on our behalf? Where do we still want to rely on our human emotions? Yeah, so obviously you've uh, written a great length about these sort of things. Let's talk a little bit about your book and some of the tools that you outline in the book and tools and techniques for establishing uh, and evaluating digital trust. Okay. Well, one of the first things uh, kind of consistent with uh, where we started was what does trust decision look like? Um, in the book, I present something called the trust decision model. And I work very hard to make sure that these are one slide images, you know, something we can look at with one slide. Um, and for the trust decision model, I thought about the way that we used to draw animated films in the 20th century. Uh, you would see, you know, a piece of cello, uh, uh, celluloid that would have the background of the forest, and then another piece would be laid on top of a, the, with the with the pond, and then there would be a third one of the fish jumping out of the water, and the fourth of the pig, a hunter, and the fifth with a gun and the bullet coming out of it with a smile, and then it would put the camera above all of those layers, and then it would create one image. Mm -hmm. Well. To change the next frame of the film, they would just change the fish. They might not change all the other layers. And I realized that the way we make trust decisions is the same manner. From beginning point to the end, we're looking for information that fits our rules, but at different layers of the process. And uh, we might be getting ready to go on a trip. Do we need an umbrella? Looks good to me. All right, I'm ready to pack the suitcase. No umbrella. And somebody yells out from the kitchen, hey, Bob, they just said on the news there's a big thunderstorm coming. Now it's new information. And now my decisions about how to pack the suitcase are going to change. Where did that fit? How did that change the decision structure? Um, so that was something that surprised me. Um, to be honest, uh, it's kind of a, one of those horror stories of being a writer is I had written the draft of the book finished it, was ready to see it and send it to publishing. And a friend read it and said, Jeffrey, you wrote the wrong book. <laughs> you actually have created something that none of us have ever seen, which is an entirely new model for structuring trust decisions. And so I had to then spend the next six months rewriting the book to pull out what he saw, which is that model. What's really cool about it is it helps us look at any decision we're making and see exactly where we are in the process understand what information we have, what's missing, what rules have been satisfied, where do we maybe need some new rules because of the fact that Bob yelled in that the weather report said what it did, that may not tell us where we are. So that trust decision model is the anchor. And from that, we can then look at the, the moving parts. Uh, there's a unified rules model that uh, allows us to think about all of the rules, a classification tool, essentially. Okay. Um, Kind of think of a, a plastic box on the table. You've got lots of debris in your workshop of nuts and bolts and screws and nails, and you need to put them in the right, you want to organize them. Well, the same thing is true for a developer building a system. Uh, same thing is true for an architect designing a home. There's plumbing codes, there's electrical codes, there's load limit codes, floodplain zones. How do they organize them all? 
Well, for the developer building a system today for information that will want to be trusted, they have the same challenge. The rules are coming from everywhere. Different nations, different or industry organizations, contracts may impose requirements on how to structure information. The unified rules model is the second tool because that allows the developer to check the boxes and see if there's anything there to make sure that he puts the rules in the right order and then she knows how to build the next piece of code. Uh, that, that's one which really surprised a lot of developers, frankly, because they're so used to just having somebody hand them the requirements. Mm. And yet, just like an enterprise architect, like a building architect in the 21st century, the person that's going to code the code has got to know where the rules are coming from and has to be willing to look past the, the requirements to see what are the sources of those rules. Yeah. The, that rules model helps. So those are two of the tools, and I use those with particularly with software engineers and with lawyers to just not only just stretch their peripheral vision, but kind of blow it off you know, the, the, the horizon because they're just so focused on what they think are the rules, and there's so much more to it. I'll never forget there was, uh, as a software engineer, one of the interviews I had at a company, you know, you get down and they, and they typically will set you in front of a whiteboard with an engineer, a uh, senior engineer, and, and they'll say, here's a problem. How would you solve it? Uh, and I'll never forget, there was one of the ones he put up and he said, okay, well, here's here's your requirement and go. How do you solve this problem? My first question was, why was that the requirement? Where did that come from? <laughs> and and, and, and he, he, he laughed just like you did. He said, you're the first person who's ever actually asked I, that I'd question. I'd hire you on the spot just for asking that question. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> The, um, uh, the, the other thing is uh, something that is kind of fun. Uh, I call it the rules for composing rules. Yeah. Um, you know, lawyers have their way of writing rules. Mm-hmm. Software people write theirs. Business people have different semantic structures, all of which is more complicated when we're working in different native languages. Um, and so through the decades of experience that I had, I was trying to find a essentially a semantic structure that we could consistently use for expressing rules regardless of the domain from which they originate. So it could be a legal rule, business rule, could be a contract rule, could be a requirement at the very granular level of what the next code line is. But how could we put together a set of requirements for how to write the rules? So the rules would then drive a more efficient automation and drive the kind of calculations we make on trust decisions so that it's all happening better and faster. Um, So the rules for composing rules are are very simple. They kind of remind you of seventh grade English where you had to deconstruct Mm -hmm. and map a a sentence, but they work. And my students, uh, notably one at, at Oxford who at the time was the enterprise architect for one of the top five drug companies in the world, pharmaceuticals, uh, he, he called it the Ritter proof. And he said, look, I want to use these to audit an existing rule. And in doing so, I can identify where its flaws are and therefore how to improve it. So perhaps there's no metric. Perhaps we don't know who the actor really should be. Or maybe we don't have a clear expression of what should be a favorable outcome. By answering those questions, we drive a higher definition and precision in the way we write the rules. So I can... I, certainly, as a software engineer working for m- multiple big companies, I can I can see how these will be wonderful techniques and tools and processes to apply in business decisions and technical decisions at a corporate level at an enterprise level. Bring it back home for our audience for for us for a mom and pop business for a small company for even just an average everyday individual going about their lives and and, and trying to figure out who to trust and not trust. How do I apply these some these techniques at home? You're listening to the America Out Loud Talk Radio Network. It's where we say, let the silent voices be heard. You'll find a whole host of shows and a great lineup back at AmericaOutloud.com. And also, get the apps. We now stream 24-7 on Android and Apple. Just look for America Out Loud Talk Radio.
bring it back home for our audience, for, for, a, for a mom and pop business, for a small company, for even just an average everyday individual going about their lives and, and, and trying to figure out who to trust, not trust. How do I apply these, some, these techniques at home? Well, one of the things that surprised me when I wrote the book is I, I handed it out to people. And, you know, please read it and comment on it and see if, you know, I should put my name on the front cover or just leave it underneath the bed for the rest of life. <laughs> and, and one of the persons, a good friend, uh, is, is a holistic counselor. She helps people with their relationships and love relationships and human relationships. And, and she wrote to me, she said, Jeffrey, I thought this book would be about, all, about computers, but it isn't. It changes the entire way I will counsel my clients going hmm. forward. And it was because of the emphasis on rules. So that if, if you're going into a relationship with someone, you have certain rules that you built up over time of what you expect out of that, whether it's a friend or a tennis partner or a social dancer. There's certain things you want to find. And if we are more consciously aware of the rules, then we have better dialogues as to whether people connect with them. Uh, just yesterday, true story, um, a data scientist uh, that is here in the Triangle region uh, wrote to me that she's developed a new concept uh, called a trust conversation and because she's, she's uh, newly single uh, and she's getting back into the dating game and she's discovering it can be hard, but she's read the book and she's, using the principles of the book on how to ask questions about the rules as a way of learning how to build trust in a new relationship with someone. Um, that surprised me, but <laughs> it delighted me because it underscores how these basic concepts can be implemented in real life. So when we get ready to make a decision in life, you know, whether it's what store to go to, what movie, uh, who to select as a teacher, I think that the value of all of this is that we understand the decision process differently. Every decision involves trust. It's a calculation. And so for those decisions we're having in our daily lives that are the hard ones, the ones that really cause us to pause as ask, are we making the right choice? Um, it's good to just use these ideas in that context. What are the rules that I actually want to be applying in this situation? Am I getting the information that's required for those rules to be satisfied or fail? Um, am I comfortable in the trust I have in the sources of that information itself? Uh, I find that this process um, kind of does work and make us better in the way we live our lives. Uh, your, your question reminds me that when we drafted a patent related to all of this material back at the beginning of this century, I kind of like to say that, you know, I'm so old that I can refer to this century as opposed to another right. century. Um, uh, and, and by the way, I, last year I released the patent into the public domain. It wasn't there to make money. It was there to drive trust. Uh, my patent lawyer said essentially, well, actually affectionately, he said, he called me the next day after we'd gone through an exhaustive discussion of things. He said, damn you. And I said, what? <laughs> he said, you've changed the way I see the world. I drove up to a stoplight and started seeing it as a trust decision <laughs> whether to rely on the red light. And so I, th I think it, these concepts are, are adaptable. One of the things that I'm uh, almost excited by, but a little bit unnerved by, is the number of interdisciplinary applications of these things and these tools that we can make in, in our daily lives. I literally could write a whole book on whether you can trust Alexa or not. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. All right. Well, that, that's absolutely fascinating. And I, and I really appreciate you walking through some of that for us. And there's a lot, again, I think it's something we take for granted. It's not something as people, we stop and think about how do we make these trust decisions? And yet it's something that by default we do. And it's something that we have to do to survive. It's, it, it's, it, how, we, it's how we live our lives and interact with the world around us. Yes. Every asset, every person, every business is a resource, a tool that we're deciding whether to trust and how much. Uh, to do that in digital space requires us to give up a lot of the tools we historically relied on to make those decisions is that we're trying to build the new tools into the technology so that we can have confidence in those outcomes as well. So just as a parting shot, what, 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 if you had to summarize your 500 page book into 20 words now, if you, if you had to pull out one nugget, one thing that, 
that, that you think that people most need to hear about living in our digital society today and, and about how to take that first step towards acknowledging that things are different and that we need to establish a digital trust? What might that be? What, what, what little nugget can you impart? Over the course of writing a book that took two years, you have many conversations with people, including your spouse. And the one thought that pops into my mind is something she said to me one morning over coffee on the couch, which was a reminder that every transaction begins with an affirmative decision to trust. And when you think about that, it actually was refreshingly profound. Yeah. And it's almost upsetting that I have to give it attribution to my wife, but that's where it came from. Uh, For us to, uh, uh, you know, buy gasoline, for us to select a television show, for us to select a teacher, for us to select information out of our computer to rely upon, we first have a decision to trust. And that transaction will not proceed unless there's an affirmative calculation. We don't take the risk when we're entering transactions. We have to have a confidence level. And that's why um, uh, when we take that concept through simply in the classroom, in the in the family kitchen, uh, in business decisions we make in small, small companies, uh, just understanding that trust is the driver, not risk management, uh, I think is the, is the walk away. Uh, so much of business over the last decade has been in particular government as well, defined by managing risk. And we forget that we only begin to manage risk when we first have trust. And in the 21st century, that's going to be calculated and it has to be conspicuous in our our daily lives, in our business, and perhaps even the way we structure our nation states going into the next century. Well, that's for sure. Thank you very much for coming in today, and hopefully we can have you back in the future. Check out uh, his book, Achieving Digital Trust. Uh, I'll have links to that on the website, and of course, your website, jeffreyrutter.com. You do public speaking as well, so have a look at that, and get in touch with Jeffrey if you'd like to learn more about digital trust. Yeah, welcome it. Uh, Tweet me, Skype me, Facebook me. I'm always looking for interactions and challenges. All right, thank you very much. Thank you. All right, and now it's time for our tip of the week. And today we're going to talk about how to share your financial data securely. And why might you want to do that? Well, there's a lot of services out there today, investing services or what they call wealth management services. Uh, You may have heard of them. Personal Capital, uh, Mint.com was one of the really big first ones, Wealthfront, Betterment. Um, And some of your, just your other financial accounts, uh, your investment type bankers and um, things like that want to consolidate all of your financial information into one place. And to do that, you need to give them access to your accounts. And of course, the way you do that today online is you give them your online passwords. And of course, if you're properly paranoid like me and everybody in this audience should now be, you don't want to give away your financial passwords. You don't give away any passwords to anybody, right? Do you trust them? How secure are they? Aren't I just giving up the keys to the kingdom when I do this? And yeah, yeah, you kind of are. So for these services to really work well, though, they need to be able to have uh, access to all your financial data. And what they don't need access to, however, is they don't need to actually do anything with that data. You don't want them to be able to, for example, create new accounts or move money between accounts or certainly not withdraw money. So what do you do in that case? Well, it's starting to come about now that the banks who really don't like these services, by the way, partially they'll claim because of security reasons, they would say, if you give your password to somebody else, we can't help you. But the banks also just don't like the competition. They don't like, basically, they want you to come to their website for your financial information and not go somewhere else. Because if you're not on their website, then you're not seeing their advertising and all their pitches to buy more stuff, et cetera, et cetera. But these services could be very handy. And having one place to go where you can see all of your accounts at one place and you know be able to track where spending goes and how your investments are doing and things like that is very handy. Uh, but the problem is, of course, like I said, you don't want to give your uh, your credentials out if you don't have to. So... Because these things have become so popular and, and there's so many of them that, that want to do this, the banks are finally wising up and they're doing what I've been wanting them to do for years. And that is to give special, limited, read-only access accounts that you can give out to these sites where all they can do is they can see your balances and maybe see your transactions. And that's it. They can't do anything else. 
which is perfect because that's all that these sites need to do. They just need to be able to see what you're doing so they can kind of help you budget and decide how much you're spending on different things and where the money's coming and where the money's going. All they need to do, uh, all they need to do that is have this read only access, meaning they can't write anything. They can't change anything. They can only view it and see what the information is there. So they can download your financial data without being able to, without you giving them permission to actually do anything valuable on your account. So these services are called aggregator services because they aggregate all the inform all this information in one place. So the passwords in the accounts are often called aggregator passwords or aggregator accounts, or sometimes they're just called read-only accounts. Banks like to give these things their own proprietary marketing names, so you're going to have to ask. But call up your bank and say, hey, do you have one of these limited access accounts? For instance, I was able to get one of these from my daughters who they have some joint accounts with me, but because they're minors, they actually can't own the account. But I was able to give them basically aggregator or read-only limited access to their account so they can at least log in with their mobile apps and see how what their balance is and kind of see what their transactions and things have been. You can give these same accounts, create these same accounts at your financial institutions and give those credentials to Wealthfront or Betterment or Mint.com so that they can get your transactions, bring together a solid aggregated condensed view of all your finances, but they will not be able to do anything with those credentials other than read your data. And if they were hacked, that goes for the people that hacked them as well. So that's my tip of the week. If you have those services or if you ever thought about using those services, but were afraid about giving out your passwords, we're finally getting to the point now where the banks are coming up with these special passwords that have very limited access, and that's the way it should be. So check with your bank and ask if they have this service. Even if they don't have this service, by you asking for this service, that will help to make sure that they know that this is important. And if enough people ask about it, hopefully they will implement it. So that's going to do it, folks. That wraps up another episode of Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Remember, you can win a free copy of my book. I'm looking for you to send me your horror stories or your interesting stories, at least, about backing up your data. We're going to have another one of our Castle Defense 101 episodes about how to back up your data safely and do it securely. And uh, I would like to find the best story. And whoever sends me the best story, the most interesting story, I will read that on the air. And you will get a free copy of my book, Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons, with well over 100 tips and all sorts of great step-by-step -step instructions on how to implement those tips, including pictures and the whole works for both Mac and PC, all your mobile devices, it's all in the book. You can send me that stuff at Parker at americaoutloud.com. That's C-A-R-E-Y-P-A-R-K-E-R. -E -E of course, you can find that on the website. Also on the website, you can find links to various articles and things that I've referenced today in the show, so you can do some further reading and information about my wonderful guest, Jeffrey Ritter, who I'd like to thank one more time for coming on the show. If you are a corporation or a business and you would like to consult with Jeffrey, he's got some great stuff for you on how to achieve digital trust within your enterprise and corporate environment. And, the, and there's some great stuff in this book just for regular mom and pop folks and even just us as individuals uh, on learning how to establish and maintain trust in this digital age. And be sure to tune in again next week. I've got a great interview with a man named Ladar Levison. He was made famous back in the day for running a, a secure email service called LavaBit. And uh, he had one very interesting customer by the name of Edward Snowden. And there's some interesting stories there to tell. And we're going to talk about secure email and how you really should be looking into securing your email on a regular basis. Even if you don't think you have anything to hide, there's a lot of good reasons to be doing that, and we'll be talking all about that, and I'm sure we'll have some very interesting stories with a man who definitely should know what he's talking about. So tune in next week for that, and until then, folks, as always, don't get caught with your drop down. See you next week.